0: We are opening the word of God together and it's a real treasure to us so just for a moment or two would you perhaps just pause we've been taught about this by our young people maybe close your eyes could you do that and let's not we don't need to do anything right now just need to pause for a moment and we need to say God by the power of your spirit who we believe according to your word is present with us By the power of your spirit, whom we are submitted to and have experienced the grace and the conviction of. By the power of your spirit, would you open your word to us this morning? We believe that it is God-breathed. We believe that it is living and it is active. And we believe that it is useful for all the parts of our Christian walk with you, that you might make us complete. What a promise. We want to be like you, Jesus. So, would you effect this miracle this morning among us that we might be more like you, Jesus? Amen. Amen. And you know, as we open the Word of God this morning. It's going to be one of those sermons, and you'll have to forgive me in advance. I, I, I didn't do an exact count, and my apologies are firstly to Lucy back on the, uh, the words, uh, but there's like a dozen uh, scripture references. We're going to be kind of piling through the Word of God, and there's kind of all sorts of kind of study of the Word of God this morning. Um, so it's, it's a kind of a concentration morning. Are you ready for that? Okay. I'm looking at you, come on, stay alive, stay alive, limber up, come on, it's going to be one of those mornings. But in everything that we do, and even when we kind of really dive deep and we find ourselves kind of rooting through the Bible and studying hard, um, what we're doing is we're looking to see Jesus, okay? And that's what we do whenever we open the Word of God. So if you're new with us this morning or maybe you're just getting to know us as a church, what we're about is we want to see Jesus, we want to hear his call that we might walk with him, and so we want to grow into his likeness. Does anybody here this morning want to be a bit more like Jesus? Two hands. Anybody want to be a lot more like Jesus, yeah? And maybe some legs. Anybody, anybody want to be completely like Yeah, I think we can go there. But that's what we're hoping to, to embark upon through the word of God this morning. Pastor Greg should probably get his notes open, otherwise he's just going to just yammer on all morning, and uh, we'll not get anywhere at all. But the word of God. Comes to us wonderfully. Last week we opened up the the book of Joshua for the first time and we found how the book begins with the the words of, of God to Joshua, the new leader, that Moses, whom the Bible says there was nobody like Moses, he was amazing. Incredible in every way. But Moses, God says to Joshua, my servant is dead. And it seems like, whoa, isn't this the ending of things? But no, in fact, with God, it's actually the beginning of new things and the continuation of the old things. You see, it's not actually Moses the people of God needed. They needed Moses God. Yeah? We need God. And we can believe the promises that God makes and act accordingly if we've seen the one who is making the promises. Yes. And here's the grace of God to us. That we, by means of the Spirit of God, get to see Jesus, who the Bible teaches us, is the fullness of God. One of Jesus' disciples on one occasion said to him, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus says, have, have we just met? <laughs> you know, did, have, haven't you been with me all this time? You see me, Jesus says, and it is to see the Father. This is incredible grace to us, that God himself will come to our world. Yeah? Sometimes we don't even want to be in this world. But God would come to this world and he would reveal the fullness of the grace and the love and the truth and the mercy and the justice of of God himself to us. We see God, the promise maker, and we can believe the promises and act accordingly. We behold him, it enables us to believe. And when we believe, then we can behave. Yeah? If you get these things out of whack, if you start trying to behave like a Christian without believing in the promises or please God first, seeing the promise maker, you're going to trip up and fall. You're going to disappoint yourself, those around you, and you'll feel like you're disappointing God. But God, in his heart of love, says, hey, how about looking at me for a change? How about starting at the beginning for a change? And when you see God, we can believe in what he says, and everything else will flow from that. And that's what we found as we um, began the book, and they, they heaped up some stones to represent how God had been remarkable in their life. I kept my little heap of stones here from last week. I had 12 I now have six, so I don't know where the other six stones uh, went, um, but I hope those of you who stole stones last week have not done any mischief with them, okay, Um, I hope maybe uh, paperweights, uh, door stops, I don't know, um, maybe I'll auction the rest later, I have no, I I just came back in on Tuesday and there were only six stones, Uh, oh Karen stole the stones, okay, good. Good, good, good. I'm glad to know where they went. Excellent. All right. So we are moving on in the book of Joshua into chapter 2. Lady named Rahab, place named Jericho. All sorts of stuff is going to go down. It's going to be incredible. You can read it through to chapter 6. That's where we're going to go in a moment. Do you remember... Uh, those of you who have been Christians for a little bit in the 90s, maybe in the noughties, I'm not sure. Um, I always enjoy saying that, but there you go. Um, the, what would Jesus do bracelets? Did anybody ever have one of those? Anybody? They really caught the imagination, didn't they? What would Jesus do? And we get the sense of it, don't we? You know, when we th- you know, think about our lives and how we're kind of journeying through life, we might glance down at our wrist and we would see this WWJD motto on our wrist and think, Hmm, yes. Jesus wouldn't steal Pastor Greg's stones. And uh, no, no, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. Um, it's totally fine. Um, we would look at it and, and we'd have that kind of prompt to think again about who, you know, what would Jesus do. But I, I, whenever I think about it, I always think perhaps it doesn't quite go far enough or it doesn't open to us the fullness of the possibility. And I know my bracelet wouldn't have just had four letters. It, it, my bracelet would have been something along the lines of not just what would Jesus do, but But what Jesus has done for Jesus is God. What Jesus is doing and what Jesus has promised to do according to his character and his will. I I need like 14 bracelets to get all of that on. Because it's not just some sort of kind of abstract thought. What would Jesus do? It's what has Jesus done? And because he totally and completely reveals his nature and his will. It's it's what is he inviting us into, and also because he makes sure and certain promises in the Word of God. It's what is he going to do, not what he, what might he do, what would he do if he knew how the future would unfold? No, no, no. God, knowing all things, has decreed how things are going to be. So, what is God doing, and what does he promise to do that we can be certain he will complete? And when we open the Old Testament, sometimes we come across some really difficult passages. And, you know, if, if we somehow kind of separate out the Jesus of, of the New Testament, you know, nice, kind Jesus, from the God of the Old Testament, then we're going to lose something. We're going to lose a lot. Jesus affirmed the fullness of Scripture. And the fullness of the revelation of God when he came into our world. There are loads of verses. If you've got a, a pen you probably, or on your phone, you might want to make some notes. Uh, I think I've said it before, but the devil hates it when you make notes. Um, because, you know, you might actually kind of look at them and do something about it in the future. Just give you a moment to find. No, okay. Um, but the Bible, you're going to have to get these verses off me later then because there's a lot. Um, John chapter 10 and verse 35. Matthew 15 and verse 3. Mark chapter 7 and verse 13. And here, let me read this one to you. Matthew 5 and verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This whole book is about Jesus. Okay? Everything that we find in this revelation of God is about how God himself, that is Jesus, is going to come and seek and save us. It's helpful to us when we encounter difficult parts of the Bible because then we realize that God doesn't change. And actually, as we're going to see this morning, it will help us to overcome some of our prejudices because we're all prejudiced. That's not a happy way to start, is it? We are. It'll help us to see perhaps with God's eyes of justice, God's eyes of mercy, and God's eyes of grace, because the world that we live in isn't always easy to navigate. Does anybody know that? What's been probably the predominant story in the news this week? It hasn't actually been Brexit. Hallelujah. Um, the story of a young lady, Shamima Begum, that's probably been the, the biggest story, hasn't it? A young lady who radicalized by an ideology of hate, committed herself into a lifestyle and a practice that is abhorrent to most of the people on earth. And having found herself now in a very difficult set of circumstances, wanting to return to a place of safety. and. Um, Everybody piles in on these things, don't we? Everyone's got an opinion. Isn't that the truth? I don't know. I think we need to get a case of what would Jesus do, bracelets for the home office. What do you think? It's a bit, or what did Jesus do? It's a tricky kind of thing. Truth is, moments like this, moments like this, they open up for us. Um, actually, tribalism within society. And immediately, everybody breaks along certain fault lines into our absolute places of certainty because we know that we are right. Don't we? <laughs> From such a tribalism, sometimes flows not so much justice but vengeance. The Bible tells me that vengeance ain't our business. It's God's business. How can we come into such difficult thinking and not just talking about news stories but talking about our own lives how can we come into such tricky things and find God and faith in him that might change the way that we look at everything well the chapter that that Libby read for us chapter 2 of the book of Joshua and you might want to have that open um, as we progress The structure of it, in actual fact, gives us an insight into what is the key or the hinge of the whole story, and it'll help us to answer some really difficult questions. I'm certain that one of these questions, at least, many of you will have had thrown at you uh, by people who perhaps are unchurched or not yet of faith in Jesus Christ. Some difficult questions that this passage might throw up are, why does Rahab choose to align with the invading Israelite force? Why is it perhaps that God uses a prostitute to bring about salvation and hope? Why is it okay or even commanded for the Israelites to kill everybody apart from Rahab and her family? Those are pretty tricky questions, don't you think? Well, the structure of the the chapter looks like this. Initially, there's... Verse 1, right at the beginning, there's a commission by Joshua, the leader of God's people, and he sends them out secretly as spies, um, telling them to view the land, especially Jericho. And we move into the next section, so we've got that beginning, then we've got the arrival and there's a problem, and then the protection of the spies, verses 2 to 7, and then right at the heart of this chapter, verses 8 to 14, comes a confession of faith by this lady Rahab and then we move into another moment of concern and protection by Rahab of the spies verses 15 to 21 and then finally the spies return to Joshua and report verses 22 to 24 so we've got these bookends let's describe this as a burger Um, because (laughs) why would we not describe the Bible as food? um you've got the bun okay does anybody want to think about a burger for, with me for a moment okay yeah, come on let's, let's take a moment there are no fries with this I'm afraid you have to look elsewhere in the scripture for your fries but we've got the bun so beginning verse one and then the report at the end and then what do you like in your burger a bit of lettuce tomato stop no I'm not asking you dummy. um lettuce and tomato in there, and that's kind of the, the, the concern of Rahab for the spies. And then underneath, should we have some cheese? I think we should. And then there's again the concern as they're, as they're getting away. But then right in the heart of it is the meat. And we all know that a burger is really about the meat. Don't we know this? Are you not? Come on, what? is everyone having a vegan month or something? What? Come on. if you are, by the way, that's totally fine. But uh, I, I, I am not, nor ever will. Um, the meat of it, the confession of faith that's, that's the hinge, that's the reason why everything unfolds as it unfolds as one commentator, Dale Ralph Davis puts it you know we've got this sandwich here, bread at the beginning and the end lettuce and tomatoes meat in the middle Rahab hears testimony about God this is why it's so important to talk about God It's so important. This whole story doesn't happen without people talking about God and what God does. Rahab doesn't hear. She has no hope. Her family doesn't get saved. The spies get captured. The whole thing falls to pieces unless people talk about God. Because Rahab has heard the testimony of who God is and what his people are like. And what's happening because of the power of God. Are we talking about God? Are we talking about God? Because unless we're testifying about the goodness and the grace of God, then then nothing of the kingdom of God unfolds. And people aren't invited into the promised relationship with God that we enjoy. Talk about God. Faith comes through hearing. Yeah. Talk about God. Rahab hears the testimony about God. She comes to conclusions about God. So how are we talking about God? And then she acts upon those conclusions. It's not enough simply to agree on the truths about God. You must respond and place your faith in God. A man named A.W. Tozer, he considered the, the, the profound implications of passages like this and, and how when God comes with righteous anger, this is how he put it. He said, you seek refuge from God in God. Does that like melt your mind a little bit? God comes and he's totally justified in bringing his judgment upon the earth. But we may seek refuge from the judgment of God in the mercy of God. Does anybody else think God's pretty good? I'm pretty big and pretty awesome and provides everything that we need. And as we kind of read through the story and you you kind of see it there, there's this scarlet cord that she ties to the the window frame so that she might be recognized when when the Israelites come to take the city. And because she hears from God and comes to conclusions, responds to him, we see that this is a means of salvation. And and it's a beautiful little motif, isn't it? And so people perhaps have thought about how almost through the whole of Scripture, you see almost like a scarlet thread of the work of salvation in the Bible because she's heard about God. Verse 10, we saw in this chapter how she's heard about the might of this God. He dried up the waters of the Red Sea and he destroyed all of these powerful kings. He's a mighty God. She's heard about the majesty of this God in verse 11. Their hearts melted before him. It's God in the heavens and God on the earth below. And then she heard also about the mercy of this God in verses 12 and 13. That God's people can deal kindly with those who are placing their faith in such a God. And deliver them from death. You know, speak about God. But consider how you're speaking about God. You know, I, I, are we kind of just playing the same notes over and over again? Do we? How, how's your uh, how's your piano game? Is it good? You know, can you kind of play a bit of a, a piece? Is, is the way that you testify about God, is it is it growing into being a bit symphonic? You know, have we got all of these kind of different aspects of the way that we speak about God in God? In, in the way that we're talking with our neighbors and our friends and our families, do we just talk about the might of God? Do we ju- I mean, do we just want to terrify people? You do, don't you? <laughs> it's good to talk about the might of God. But you've got to talk about the mercy of God as well. There's no way in otherwise. Do you talk about the majesty of God? Are you just bowled over by his glory and his greatness? Certainly we should be. But if we just talk about his majesty, well then, where is the personal connection with one who acts in this world in a mighty fashion and brings his mercy? Do we just talk about the mercy of God? Do we we not want to offend anybody ever by ever talking about his might or his majesty, the fact that he is above all and before all? Come on. The the testimony that that Rahab heard was might, majesty, and mercy. And because of all of these things, she was able to form a good picture of this God. And she was able to place her trust in this God. And she ties that scarlet thread onto the window. And you you read through the story and salvation comes. Because of this, Rahab's house becomes a safety zone becomes a bit like noah's ark or it comes a bit like those houses back in egypt where they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and and the angel of death passed over and and it's this kind of image of a place of salvation because of faith in god and without this without this faith in a, a faithful testimony what would have happened well Without this faith, tribalism would have prevailed. It would have been Canaanite versus Israelite and let the, let the chips fall as they may. It would have been, without this faith, self-interest prevailing. and Rahab would have totally given over these spies to the authorities because that would have made selfish sense. Without this faith, There's no opportunity for accepting God's righteous judgment. Without this faith, there's no hope of understanding the state of the world now or for the future. Without Rahab's faith, there would be no salvation for her, for her family, or for those to come. You see, as the story unfolds, Jericho, spoiler alert here, Jericho is going to fall. I don't know whether you've heard anything about this. You know, the walls are going to come down. Have I ruined the story for some of you? You're like, oh, you know, I was going to read it. I'll read it anyway, obviously. The walls are going to come down. And, um, and it, it's, it's not going to be a pleasant picture. And this is what opens up to us one of these really significant questions that we as believers, we would do well to wrestle with. And I know we've got the kids in with us, so we're not going to go into all of the gory details. But suffice to say that there is something of a holy war that is happening in the land of Canaan at this time. And the word that the Bible uses for this is cherem. And it's, it's a word that describes this, this, this war, this conquest that God has called his people to do. So he's promised the land, but he's saying to them, you've got to act upon the promise. Step into the reality of it. And there will be a conquest that is necessary. Now, as we read through what this looks like, there's this elephant then in the room. It's going to need to be acknowledged. And, and Christians, may, uh, people who aren't yet Christians, may well have thrown this at you and asked, in the book of Joshua, and maybe elsewhere in the Bible, is actually God sanctioning and even commanding some form of genocide here? Because is he saying to one people group, you should come and wholly do away with another people group and take their land and their property? Is that is that is what's happening in the Bible? Because at first glance, it might look a bit like it. In Joshua chapter 6, and let me just take a couple of verses for you. Verse 17, and this is how they're going to come and take the city. Verse 17 says, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the lord for destruction only rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent then again in verse 21 then they devoted all in the city to destruction men and women young and old ox and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword and then again to verse 24 and 25 and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury in the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy out Jericho. Well, that doesn't sound good, does it? Did you know that was in your Bible? You're like, hang on a sec. I thought I knew God. He's loving and kind, isn't he? Isn't he nice? What's this doing in my Bible? Yeah? Well, let's address this just for a moment or two before we come back to the work of salvation that God is doing. Now, there's loads and loads of things that we can say here because I've just pulled out a handful of verses And and any of you here this morning, you should know, that's not a good way to deal with your Bible, okay? So if that's it on its own, then we've done the Bible a disservice. We need to look at these verses in their context and understand actually why they're there and what they're saying. So how can we do that? Well, first up, it's worth noticing within the culture of the day that any killing that was to happen was not a sacrifice to God. Now, why do I say that? Well, because in this culture, in some Moabite records in this part of the world, there's a king, Misha, boasts that he'd killed all the inhabitants of one city as a sacrifice to his God. That's not what is happening here. At no point does God describe any of it as some sort of sacrificial offering, nor do the people think that that's what they're doing. And when they talk about what's happening They don't believe that that's the case. Why is this happening then? Why is this a part of the story? Well, primarily, any of these killings, they are an issue actually of sin and wickedness. And in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 4 to 6, you can read it for yourself, but in there it says, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Again, in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy and verse 12, it says, For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And then again in Leviticus 18 and verses 24-25, read it for yourself. But it says there that the land itself became unclean, so that I, God, punished its iniquity. And here we have a really vivid image. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. Oh. Spend a moment just thinking about vomiting for a, just a moment. Um, why does it happen? Well, it's because there's something inside that shouldn't be there and is causing harm. And so in response, your body ejects these things. This is the imagery that the Bible uses to describe what is happening here. These chapters, they make plain to us, um, in Leviticus chapter 18 particularly, it makes plain to us that some of these sinful things, and again, we'll not go into detail, um, but they included some devastatingly horrendous things like the sacrifice of of children, in fact, to a God in the land. They involved all sorts of Um, sexual wrongness, which, again, I'm not going to go into, but you can see it for yourself in Leviticus chapter 18. There is horrendous, defiling, and appalling practice going on in the land. The people who are in the land are not, we may consider, good or innocent people by the standards of God, but there is a sickness in the land, and the people are about to be ejected. And let us also consider for a moment here that it is not because Israel or the Hebrews are so much better that they are coming into the land. Actually, you know, the Bible says very clearly in Leviticus 18 that Israel too would be vomited out of the land if they indulged in these dreadful practices. This is not a racially motivated war. This is not an act of genocide. It's an issue of of sin, wickedness, and of holiness. And it's an issue of God seeking to preserve his people, Israel, from sin, for their own good, and so that they can be people who proclaim the way and the wisdom of God to the whole earth. That was their mandate. That's, that's why they're there. And the Bible shows us that this is something that they didn't do properly and how that's such a big problem. In Psalm 106, We find these verses from verse 34 onwards. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. Uh, It goes on to describe some of the horrific practices that even the people of Israel indulged in because they did not adhere to God's commands people of Israel failed also in their mandate to be holy and to show the world what that looked like. Because they tolerated sin and the Canaanite sinners, they became contaminated with sin, causing them to fail in knowing their God and showing him to the world. But in all of this, the Bible teaches us that God is patient. In Genesis chapter 15... God is talking with Abraham. And and in verse 13 of that chapter, God says to Abram, "'Know for certain that your offspring "'will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs "'and will be servants there, "'and they will be afflicted for 400 years. "'But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, "'and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. "'As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace.'" You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, Amorites is a, it's a term for all the people in the land. And here we've got this description, even with some of the time scale, that the wickedness of the people in the land, God Himself is saying, has not yet reached its absolute worst. And so God is being patience the new testament puts it like this that God is not slow as some count slowness rather he is patient wishing that all should come to repentance that's the heart of God that's the attitude of God and so even his people were to be subjected to slavery for 400 years and to wander through the desert on the way to this land because God is patient because he doesn't deal with one nation differently to another, because he's not racially motivated, absolutely not. But rather, God wants holiness in his world. He wants people to know him and to understand his ways. Not only was time allowed, but also the evidence of God's character and call was there for these people in the land, the Canaanites, to see. In Genesis 18 and 19, we see the destruction of a couple of towns, Gomorrah and Sodom. And they're an example to the people and how God's man Lot was delivered in contrast. Abraham himself lived among these people, showing them how they could live according to God's ways and know the blessing of that. And even this mysterious figure, Melchizedek in Jerusalem, Genesis chapter 14, was there practicing and teaching the proper worship of God Most High. All of these evidences, these testimonies were present in the land, God being patient with them, and yet they chose to reject him. What else can we say? That the the, the conquest in Canaan was not any kind of reckless massacre. We know through human history that when you know, People lay siege to towns and there's a build-up of, uh, of, of, of tension that when that tension is released, people can do terrible things. But this is not what is happening here. And in Deuteronomy chapter 20, there are very clear instructions given by God to his people about what they can do and about what they can't do. Notably, they're called to um, leave the women and children to be incorporated into the people of Israel as a, as a blanket thing. And they're not to practice any sort of scorched earth policy throughout the land. And there's a strong sense that the ultimate goal is not actually about death, but about the cleansing of the land. Deuteronomy 9 and verse 3, we find God saying, you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly. And we see in the examples of Joshua, actually, that the kings and the fighters of the land of Canaan were permitted every single time to surrender and to flee. And many of them did before they would be subject to the righteous wrath of God through his servant Israel. Now, for all of these reasons and more, we know that actually we can't just put a simple lens onto the Bible and say, oh, that is this. That's a racially motivated thing, or that's an act of genocide, or that's this, or that's that. It, that's simply treating the word of God too cheaply. And it's very, very clearly when you rightly handle the word of God that that is not what is happening. But in all of this, is anybody still disturbed? <laughs> is anybody still disquieted by all of this talk of attacking and killing and all these kinds? I hope you are. I think we should be, shouldn't we? These things are troubling. Because these things, they remind us that God's call for our submission to him is actually a matter of life and death. And Christians, I want us to remember that this morning. All too often, we, we fool ourselves, don't we? We fool ourselves into thinking that our faith in God and our walk with Jesus Christ is just a matter of, of kind of having a slightly improved life. We fool ourselves into thinking that it's just a matter of kind of making a little bit of an improvement here or, you know, doing a little bit of housework over there in our lives, that, that God comes to us so that we can feel happy. That might be part of it. And certainly there should be improvements along the way. But the truth of the matter is to submit or not to submit to the to the rule of God, in our lives, just as in those days, is truly a matter of life and death. And I want to make that plain to us this morning. God comes to us with all those things we talked about before, with his might and his majesty and his mercy, because this is a matter of life and death. Do you know God? Is your life humbly surrendered to his righteous rule and reign? Is the evidence of that there in the way that you are growing to become more like Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit? Is your life entirely founded upon him and his word? Is your life centered upon him? Is your life a revelation of the goodness and the grace of God? You see, these are the things that flow from a realization that this is not about fixing bits of behavior. This is not about practicing some of the cultural things of our Christianity. This is about a life or a death thing. And there's a struggle. And the struggle is just as real in our world today as it was in that world then. Our battle, the Bible teaches us, is not against flesh and blood. It's not a matter of burning cities or using swords. Our battle is against spiritual powers that would seek to lead people astray, away from God and into ways of wickedness and sin. They would seek for people to be blinded and confused and deadened within their hearts that they might never know the life of Jesus Christ. This is the battle. And I would pray this morning that our hearts would be disquieted by these passages of Scripture sufficiently that we realize that this battle still rages. That there are Jerichos within our world that are repositories of wickedness. And don't you dare try and put the label of one people group or one particular person upon these. No, these are spiritual things. These are capturing and destroying the lives of people in our world. And, And men and women everywhere are submitting themselves to ways of brokenness that will lead them away from the author of life. What are we to do about it? The battle still rages, and I pray that our hearts are disquieted about such things, because this is life or death. Where is your life? Is it in the hands of an awesome God? It is inevitably uncomfortable, but when we realize exactly what is at stake here, we can come to the conclusion of Scripture, will not the judge of all the earth do right? For there was salvation for those who believed in God and trusted in him. Was Rahab the only person in that city who had heard the testimony of what God was doing? Oh, no. Not even close. How would it be that somebody in a terrible profession, a lady who would be counted as the lowest of the low in society, she's not somehow the only person who's heard about this. No, from top to toe of that civilization and that society, they'd heard about this God. They'd heard the exact same testimony of his might and his majesty and his mercy. And yet it was just Rahab who responded. For there is salvation for those who in faith will believe. Rahab becomes a pioneer in faith. It's a faith that tells us that it's not just open to those who are of the right tribe or of the right blood only. This is a faith that is open to all who believe. And you know, I count it a privilege to be able to stand before you week in and week out and look at such a diverse bunch of people. You are magnificently and extravagantly beautiful. I don't know whether you knew that. Did you? Has anyone told you that recently? Um, extravagantly and wondrously beautiful living stones of faith joined together by the power of God with his own presence dwelling in amongst you. This is an incredible place to be. It's not just open to one or two or this type or that type or those or the other. No, it's open to you and to me. And do you know, we oftentimes, don't we feel our inadequacy? So it comes as a surprise to us every time that we realize, I believe in Jesus. And he saved me by grace. Has anyone been surprised by that recently? I know I have. You know, when my temper gets the better of me, and then I realize that Jesus still loves me. Isn't that incredible? Anybody else got a bit of a temper out there? You don't have to confess in front of everyone, you know, when we make our failings, when we falter, when we stumble, when we are lacking in grace, even though we want to be like Jesus, and we're reminded that the very one of grace has stretched out his arms that we might be welcomed into his family. Oh, be surprised. Would you be surprised by these things? It is beautiful. And because Jesus is beautiful, so are you. Tell someone near you they're beautiful. Oh, you grumpy bunch, tell somebody near you. <laughs> Rahab is a pioneer in faith. And Rahab shows us powerfully the nature of God's grace. Yes, she was a harlot, but she then was welcomed into God's people for the rest of her days. And I'm reminded in this of what we recently have looked at in the, in the Word of God. You know, we, we spent the start of the year, didn't we, looking at the story of the prodigal, prodigal son? Do you remember this? I hope you did. We, we spent five weeks on it, so it might have gone into the consciousness. But. And the story, of course, goes that this guy, he had everything that he could possibly hope for, and yet he recklessly threw it all away. And he threw away in that moment his sense of status and of significance and of security. He wasn't just throwing away money. He was throwing away his own identity. And yet God welcomes such back. The father's arms outstretched. His eyes seeking. His feet pound in the streets to come and rescue and redeem. This is the heart of God. And yet in and amongst that we found that older brother, didn't we? Do you remember the story? And how the older brother says, what? Shouldn't we just be punishing this guy? Kicking him out on the scrap heap of life? Isn't that how it should be? Because his heart, even though he was close to the father, physically was far from the father's heart. And I wonder, even as we read this incredible story of this pioneer woman, Rahab, can we be challenged? Can we be challenged to see people differently, Who is this lady Rahab? Well, the Bible doesn't finish with her here. In Matthew chapter one and verse five, we find that in the genealogy, the family history of Jesus, there's a man named Salmon. I love the fact that he's called after a fish. Salmon, who's the father of Boaz. Good guy, read about him. Whose mother was Rahab. They didn't mention ladies in these family histories normally, but they found a space for Rahab. She's one of only two women mentioned in Hebrews 11, which is the Bible's faith hall of fame. In Hebrews 11:31, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She is an example for us in faith. Isn't she an incredible woman? And then James, chapter 2, James credits her when writing about faith and works in partnership together. Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Her faith credited to her as righteousness. Wow. Wow. This is remarkable stuff of the inclusion by God of those who will believe. Come on, Christians. Come on, church. Our pompous rejection of a difficult character may well be the rejection of the means of salvation for many. Can we get over ourselves? Does anybody want to get over themselves? I want to get over myself. Sometimes when I'm pompous, I don't like myself. You say, Pastor Greg, you're never pompous. (laughs) I want to get over myself. I want to see people how God sees people. How many of us, if we were those spies going into Jericho, we'd be like, oh, I know she's the only one who says we're welcome, but we can't go in there. Do you know what she does? Shh. Not having anything to do with her. And we'd count ourselves martyrs, wouldn't we? And, you know, we'd uh, give ourselves an upgrade, put some stripes on our shoulder, how awesome we are for the faith. <laughs> it's not the Bible's example. Bible's example is look for faith, look for grace, look for those who are responding to the word of your testimony, look for those who hear about God and want to be close to that God, and get over yourself. Get over yourself. Don't be an older brother. As a church, we need to ask ourselves, how many of us could be the means of salvation to a prostitute in Birkenhead? And through her to see the salvation of many others, we need to ask How many of us could be the means of salvation coming to a homeless guy or a drug user or can we get really close how many of us would be the means of salvation to our horrible boss because that's probably a bit harder isn't it or those teenagers on your street corner or that Muslim family who's moved in two doors down get over yourself get over yourself Testify to the goodness of God. Look and pray for faith. It's the challenge of rejecting tribalism in favor of faith, in favor of grace. Rejecting our holier-than-thou attitudes in favor of the one who truly is holy. Come on. Does anybody this morning want to get over themselves? Anybody? Does anybody want to lay down our sense of self and pride and prejudice in favor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a rejection of truth, but it's being like Jesus who was full of both truth and grace. Anybody want to get over themselves this morning? Anybody? (laughs) (laughs) All right, church. Let's respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shall we do that?